Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. I can assure you, John, you and I could walk to the Brevard County Jail right now and say, who wants to tell me about somebody, I'll cut you a deal. We'll be getting calls before we get back to your office. Hey, I can tell you about so-and-so. Um, so yeah, that was that was a practice that, like I said, one of the one of the most respected long-term judges said, "Stop, knock it off." And uh, then he kept getting arrested for trying to hire people to kill uh, Cheshire. And one of the people he hired was Michael Hunt's brother, Richard Lee Hunt. That's how all that happened. And then then afterwards, you know, after all these ugly, unkind things they said about Zachy, which probably were true. Then they started using him as their star witness. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to season two of Murder on the Space Coast, a podcast told in 14 parts, detailing how three, and possibly more, men were sent to prison for serious crimes they did not commit, and the systematic approach prosecutors took to deny these men justice. We learned that one important weapon in the prosecutorial arsenal was the blatant use of jailhouse snitches, who would say anything in exchange for reduced sentences. In many cases, it appeared as if the informants were coached or told what to say. We know that the use of these jailhouse informants became so flagrant that a sitting judge wrote a letter telling the state attorney to knock it off. In the last episode, we started profiling one of the most notorious of these informants, a man who killed a prosecutor's brother, hired a man to kill a judge and the state attorney, was a drug smuggler, and ran a stolen car ring. That man, Clarence Zaki, was sentenced to 180 years in prison for his crimes. And at that time, there was evidence that he may have also been raping his adopted daughter for years, something that was ignored when Zaki somehow maneuvered himself into the position of being prosecutor Dean Moxley's star witness. Remember, in an earlier episode, we heard how Zaki was placed on a prison van with Wilton Dedge as he was being transported back to Brevard County and suddenly appeared as a state witness saying that Dedge had confessed to him. Zaki had knowledge of the crime that really could have only come from the perpetrator or a prosecutor or a cop. And since we know that Dedge was innocent because DNA later exonerated him, then Zaki must have been fed the information from another source. Prosecutors allowed him to testify even though they knew he had been investigated by a grand jury for raping his young adopted daughter years earlier. To really try to get at the depths of how prosecutors would do anything to win a case back in the 1980s, I need to tell you a little bit more about Zaggy. And a warning, the language can get a little graphic so it may not be suitable for younger or sensitive listeners. But it's important because Clarence Zaki was a favorite informant for Prosecutor Dean Moxley, who later became a judge. Here I am talking with Tom Davis, a former FDLE profiler who has had several run-ins with Zaki over the years. Let's talk about Zaki for yes, a second. Sir. 
he's a bad guy. He did some bad things. Can you tell us a little bit about him, what you know about him, Mm -hmm. what he did, and then how he ended up as the state's or Moxley's, (laughs) you know, star witness in several cases? Amazing that Clarence Albert Zaki would even be considered, in my opinion, uh, as a potential witness. Remember, this is a guy who had a prosecutor's brother killed and tried to hire someone to kill the chief prosecutor and even a judge. I asked Tom if anyone else back then thought it was as weird as I do. I mean, I wouldn't want my co-workers making deals with someone who killed one of my family members. Uh, yeah, I'm totally curious about Zaki. He killed Michael Hunt's brother, and yet now he's you know, sort of uh, a star witness you know, for yeah. the state attorney's office. Was there any tension in the yeah. office? I know Michael Hunt's a pretty easygoing guy, and I mean... There were a lot of heads shaking, uh, going bewildered, like... Are you kidding me? And uh, having known Mr. Hunt's probably a big part of his life, casually, uh, and then certainly professionally, um, I can see that he would probably consent to help a case, even at the expense of his brother's killer, or the person that caused his brother's death, uh, by hiring somebody. Um, That's probably, but yes. I was surprised. I think everyone was surprised. Like, are you kidding me? This is Michael's brother's killer. So, yeah, it was. It was It was the talk. Zaki became so reliable for the state that he actually sliced his 180-year prison sentence down to less than 20 years. Let me repeat that. Less than 20 years. He testified against Wilton Dedge, as I'd mentioned, and against a man sent to the electric chair that you'll hear more about later. He also testified against the men he tried to hire to kill his enemies. Here's former prosecutor Sam Bardwell. But Clarence Zaki, you know, was sent off for just a huge amount of cases. But Clarence Zaki uh, had this little scheme. And of those who knew what was going on, we said Clarence Zaki took more confessions than a Catholic priest whenever they needed a confession. Joe Mitchell would make a deal to file a a 3.850 alleging ineffective assistance of counsel. Moxley, he would then not oppose it. So all of a sudden, he's in a position to grant the man some leave, you know, for a sentence. Clarence Zaki would be placed in close proximity to a person they wanted to prosecute And within a few minutes, he would get a confession. The confession was so generic that he never was able to get any details that authenticated the accuracy. We've heard from Joe Mitchell earlier. He's a longtime criminal defense attorney here in Melbourne, who also happened to represent Zaki. Now, there is something else, something very important and gross to consider. Clarence Zaki was a child rapist, and apparently prosecutors knew about that. Remember, in an earlier episode, we heard Bardwell tell the story of how the state attorney, Doug Cheshire, approached him and told him that Zaki's wife called, accusing her husband of raping their daughter. Here's a little bit of that audio again. It's important, and it's worth a re-listen. Now, I had a conversation. I was with Doug Cheshire in the courthouse probably in Melbourne. 
he and I were together alone for some reason. So he is talking, complaining to me that Clarence Zaki's wife is calling him, saying that Clarence Zaki forced her to have, bring men, forced her to have sex with these men, and that he was having sex, or these men were having sex with their daughter or her daughter, who was under 12 at the time, a capital crime. So I knew about Clarence Zaki's reported motive, and I know that Doug Cheshire had to be aware that something is wrong here. I was I'm fully aware that they knew that Clarence Zaki was as evil as they come, and they knew about the sexual abuse. So you, you got this idea that you know they knew what they were dealing with, and they were ignoring this, and there was injustice. And it was so rampant. So prosecutors apparently are aware that Zaki was raping his young adopted daughter, and yet they were still using him in cases including a rape case with fabricated evidence against Wilton Dedge. So Zaki slices all this time off of his prison sentence, and it was back in 2004 that Zaki was only a few months away from being released. I was appalled at what I'd learned about him and that he was going to be out of prison soon. So I wrote a big story about him in November 2004. The headline was, Tales of a Jailhouse Snitch. And well, I guess I wasn't the only one who was shocked that he would be freed soon. I was soon contacted by one of his victims, one of the strongest people I've ever met, Michelle Martin. She approached me, and she wanted her story told. She even said it would be okay for us to use her name. I was, my grandfather was staying with us. He was sitting, he read the newspaper every day and I was one, I didn't want to hear the news. I had heard enough of it. And he said, wasn't your last name Zaki? I said, yeah. He said, well, there's a Zaki in here that's getting out of prison. I went, a what? And he told me it was Clarence Zaki and my heart sunk. I was terrified. There, how they could let a man like that out. I always thought that maybe they didn't do anything about what he did to me because he was already gonna be in there forever anyway. I thought that once you got that kind of sentence, you were in. Right. But that's not the case. And he was getting out. I think it was supposed to be sometime the end of that year. So I contacted, I emailed the president of the United States, the vice wow. president. Congress, the Senate, um, everybody I could think of. And the only one that got back to me was you. And I only got in contact with you because you wrote that article. And I'm like, we can't do this. You can't get out. Well, uh, you know, and I think I remember, you know, because we don't have caller ID here. Our phones are from like the 1940s. <laughs> and um, so I answered the phone and I get a, a lot of crazies who mm. call me. You know? I'm still one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were going off on this. I'm like, um, I, I don't know. And I was like, well, why can't he get out of jail? And then you told me. He raped me every And I was, day. I think I was like sitting at my desk with just an open mouth. And I was like, oh my goodness. And, you know, I believed you, but yet I can't write that story right. because there's no proof or anything. Right. So I think I called up somebody at the state attorney's office, Julia Lynch, I think maybe with the sex crimes or something. Mm -hmm. I got sent to, I had to go file a report. And when I did, 
I went in to file the report and they're like, well, we're going to have you meet over here. And that's when I get introduced to Tom Davis and Ryan Bliss. And Tom Davis is just that amazing guy, right? Tom Davis is, I trust him with my life. He is phenomenal. He did everything he possibly could to keep me safe. And because if I disappeared, Zachy gets out of prison. So he, he did everything to keep me safe, to keep me sane. I mean, there were nights that I couldn't sleep that I called him and he just talked to me. Yep, Tom Davis, the now-retired FDLE profiler, the same guy you've heard here now for two seasons of Murder on the Space Coast. Met with the, uh, the victim, who of course is adult now with her own children, and uh, we, uh, <clears throat> what I did actually is I instructed her, she agreed to cooperate. I asked her to write uh, Zachy a letter and say, I saw you're getting out of prison after all these years. I'd really like to talk with you. I don't have my real dad. And we composed that letter under controlled situation, and I sent it to the Department of Corrections where Zachy was at. Uh, he immediately responded, she indicated in that letter, hey, I'd like to be on your visitors list. And he immediately, that day, a receipt of the letter put her on the visitors list. Uh, early January, uh, about... Uh, 30 days later, we, myself and another FDLE agent, uh, transported the young lady, the, the lady to uh, the institution, equipped her with electronic transmitting and recording devices, and she went in. So here is Zaki's adopted daughter agreeing to wear a wire into prison to try and get him to admit out loud what he used to do to her. She thought the conversation would be indoors and that she would be protected by glass. It spooked her to have to face him and walk around with him in the prison yard. Yet, she went through with it. Here's what happened. But I went in and I told him, I said, look, you're getting out. And you want to have a relationship with me. I need you to acknowledge some memories that I have. He said, okay. I said, I remember you waking me up in the morning and making me perform oral sex. Or something. I don't even remember how I started it anymore. But he said he kept trying to keep us away from the crowd so he could still maintain this big murderer in the, in the prison because they're revered. Sure. Child molesters are beaten. He didn't want anybody to hear him. So he kept trying to keep us away from the crowd and he went into detail and told me tons of things that I never remembered and different things that he used to do to me and I he'd say I had anal sex with you I said okay so what you're telling me is you took your penis and made him say it three different ways just in case one of them wasn't good enough right smart yeah. so, and he confessed to everything Zachy was charged with child rape. Here is a tiny little snippet of that wire. I'm sorry about the audio. It's not great, and this recording was made of that recording as it was played in open court. But you can hear Zachy say, I realize it was wrong. And when Michelle asks him what was wrong, he says, having sex with you. Listen to this. 
Of course, during that 2007 trial, Zaki denied it was his voice on the tape. Here's an interesting little exchange between a state prosecutor and Zaki from his trial. And you heard the tape that was played here in this courtroom, did you not? Yes, sir. That's your voice on the tape, isn't it? No, sir. Would you agree that you have a fairly unique voice? I don't know what you call that. All, I guess all the Southern boys would have a unique voice. Do you expect everyone in this room to believe that is not your voice on that tape? Well, sir, I don't know what I expect anyone to believe. I just know what was and what wasn't. When you say they did a pretty darn good job on that tape, if it wasn't your voice, they even got the inflections right, didn't they? Say that again. Didn't that sound like you on that tape to you? No, it does not sound like me. That's all I have here. The sort of happy ending in all of this was that Zaki was sentenced by Judge Lisa Davidson to five life sentences and is presently serving out his days at a South Florida prison reserved for older inmates. There was one person in particular who was sitting in the back of the courtroom for that entire trial and happy to see Zaki sent away for good. It was Wilton Dedge, the man Zaki helped railroad by lying that Wilton had confessed to him that he had raped a woman years earlier. Wilton, remember, spent 22 years in prison before being exonerated by DNA evidence. He told me off-camera that he stared at Zaki the entire time, and they made eye contact only once, and Zaki quickly turned away. I asked him what he thought about the use of jailhouse testimony. And jailhouse informants. Oh, and all of them. Yeah, that's a joke, too. That's, that's really a joke. I, I yeah, heard. because, yeah, I've met, yeah. I've lived with the people, and you got guys that'll do anything to get out. To, they'll say anything you want them to. Yeah. So, no, that's not, it shouldn't be used. Yeah. And we've already proven that, you know, most of the time they're lying just to get a deal. And then they deny getting a deal while they're testifying. Right. Even though the prosecutor who's prosecuting knows they're getting a deal. You know, it's still not brought out. Oh. Are there, in your opinion, Wilton, are there still innocent guys in prison? Oh, definitely. There's no question. But what I found really upsetting was that after all this happened, I was looking around our archives of newspaper clippings and found an article from around the time that Zaki was being investigated for all of his other misdeeds, and I recognized Michelle Martin in one of the stories. And then um, I showed you an article earlier that we have here that talks about an 11-year-old girl who went before the grand jury. I remember that. That was you. That was me. I was living at Country Acres Group Home, and the director of Country Acres took me to the courthouse to testify in front of the grand jury, and I stood in front of them, and I told them everything he did to me, told them about having sex with him, told them about the oral sex, told them about him waking me up, and they didn't care. And so, the, and so just to be clear, you were there because he was already in trouble for other stuff. He had already been stuff. arrested for all the other stuff. I don't even remember what all he was arrested for. Right, well, it was, initially it was drugs, and mm -hmm. then he tried to kill somebody, and then he actually mm -hmm. hired somebody to kill, mm -hmm. you know, Richard Lee Hunt. Right. And so I guess they had a, a grand jury. And um, do you remember anybody who was in that room in the 
grand jury or, or anything about I just about remember that? the director being there with me. I couldn't tell you who was in the room. I was 11. It, it's all, I remember being terrified, standing in front of people you don't know. And everybody's face, I mean, they were all grown-ups. They all looked like old people to me. So. And so you told them the truth. And they had attorneys there. Wow. I and had a representative. I don't know who it was. <coughs> and so you were too young to realize then, at the time, about all the deals that he made and how he became powerful, a star witness you know, for Dean Moxley and for other prosecutors, I think. But in two cases in particular that he testified, Wilton Dedge and Gerald Stano, one resulted in an execution man of a died. man. Yeah, a man died. And the other was an innocent man who went to prison for rape for 22 years. Now, it seems to me that they knew that he was a child rapist. There's no way they wouldn't have known. Testimony for the grand jury is not hidden. I never, and I told everybody that would stop long enough to listen that he did this to me. I mean, everybody knew. I mean, even after he was arrested, I told people. So there's no way they didn't know. So let's get this straight. Michelle testified about being raped by Clarence Zaki in 1981, and prosecutors know this. Isn't it totally sickening that he then becomes a favorite of Dean Moxley's and is allowed to become a state witness in numerous cases and lower his sentence by presenting false testimony, including a rape case like Wilton Dedge. The man was a friggin' child rapist for crying out loud. Ugh. We will get into the strange and complicated Gerald Stano case and Clarence Zaki's involvement with that later on in the series. But clearly, the problem of using jailhouse informants goes beyond the norm. I mean, if prosecutors want to say they were duped as well, and that they were not coaching or feeding the informants, then I would respond with one simple question. Why not polygraph them? Joe Mitchell agrees. Now, I don't think anybody's ever said, and of course, I'm an old man and my memory's not as good as yours, John. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think that they ever polygraphed any of these uh, snitches. Now, it would seem to me that at a bare bones minimum, send them over, the, send Phil Sellers over to the jail and let him polygraph these people and see if it's true. But then again, you know, sometimes you don't want to know the answer. So, you know, you like what the person says. It's not your job to uh, play defense attorney. I like what he says, and I don't know if I want to do anything to disrupt it because if he, he's saying all this right now, and if I send a polygraph operator over there, the polygraph examination will never be admissible in evidence, and he might not be telling the truth. So it's a lose-lose for me. Right. Why do I need to get a polygraph operator to go over there and uh, give him a test? I might, you know, he, I might lose him. Here is longtime public defender J.R. Russo, also wondering why the state never insisted on polygraphing these informants. The, one of the things that I thought was quite telling um, about their desperation to do this was that when they used these jailhouse niches, it would seem to me a very simple thing, that a very simple policy to have in place to say that before we use these people, uh, who obviously are providing testimony to us in a quid pro quo fashion to get a reduced sentence, that they would like to maybe conduct a polygraph. 
which they never tended to do. Right. Which seemed to me that um, was an inference of saying we don't want to we don't want to do a polygraph on these people because we don't want to know. We don't want to know. So why do the polygraph? And to me, that is just terrible prosecution. When you're willing to settle for testimony that you think might be um, fraudulent and false, uh, and and now and stick your head in the sand and want, not want to determine whether it's credible, this is terrible, absolutely terrible. Or yeah. if they did do a polygraph, we might not have known it because they didn't have to reveal it. So there may have been polygraphs done, and we don't know the results whether they were inconclusive or. Or I would hope to think that if the polygraph came back, if they did one and it came back that, that, the, that the person was deceptive, that they didn't use him, or whether it came back that, that he was telling the truth, we don't know. I asked Bill Dillon what he thought of all this, and he just shook his head and put it in the broader context of justice, or the concept of justice simply getting lost. He has become an advocate over the years for innocence projects around the country, and has put himself out there as the face for the wrongfully incarcerated. He's even spoken of one day running for public office. He says it's not enough to be outraged at these events. Eventually, there will need to be some action. We all know and we all believe that justice cannot fail. With justice failing, it fails all all of what we have. I understand that totally. But I do want justice for the wrongfully convicted young kids that were taken by this special, I call a special hit squad, that were just taken guys and kids, mostly, mostly young men, and taking them and locking them away when nobody cared for them or when they didn't have any help. Because I've tried to get everybody involved in, in looking at Brevard. Not now, but years ago, the cases. Because that's where it's happening. It's not what Brevard is now. It's what Brevard was. Okay, they've cleaned it up. Well, let's clean up all the mess. Let's not just scoop up some things under the rug. Let's clean it up. Let's get it right. I mean, that's it's up to us. I mean. If nobody's going to push them but us, they're not going to do it themselves. We have to make them push it. And all we have to do is just light a little fire there. They'll start, it'll start coming out of the woodwork. Believe me. And it's up to the people. It's up to the people. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, how did Bill Dillon wind up in prison for 28 years? I'm not taking it, I'm not taking it personally yet. I'm really not taking it personal because I had nothing to do with it. So it doesn't really... I'm not really personalizing the fact to say they're going to pin a crime on me. All they're doing is searching, trying to find out who committed the crime. And I didn't commit the crime, so I'm not really sweating in the sense to say that they're going to find something out about that I don't want them to find. Other than the fact of any activities that I might be doing, any, like smoking a joint or having some reefer on me or something like that. It has nothing to do with any kind of murder scenes or anything like that. So. It doesn't, it doesn't really come in my, in my head that, that they're really trying to arrest me for murder. I mean, you know, uh, numerous other problems with his identification. His description of uh, uh, the perpetrator was completely at odds with the description of Bill Dillon. Um, he, he, gave, um, uh, he gave a description about the perpetrator's, um, you know, sexual genitals that, that differs from that of Mr. Dillon's. I mean, um, he also was dark. You know, it's hard to see people at night. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. 
Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers. And the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.